You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Adam Sandler is Punch Drunk Jack. <laughs> Shut up! Each week, Adam Thomas and Tom Snariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I, Adam Thomas Snariani, a bushy 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 bushy. And I am Adam Thomas, and please do not play Twista with my sister. I would not. No, I would never. Your twin sister, who looks exactly like you, because that's how twins work. Yep, exactly how that works. Right, we're geneticists here, clearly a double-edged devil. Bill, we have our doctorates in that, and also Adam Sandler films. It was a dual degree for the both of us. Yep. That. Yes, uh, but we aren't the only ones schooled in Adam Sandler's filmography here. We have a returning guest who's been on quite a few times, and I know is a pretty big Sandler fan in his own right. It's Mr. Scott Johnson. Scott, welcome back to the show. I, I, I'm very happy to be back here. I'm your favorite uh, donut-flavored pudding hoarder, and I am here to entertain you. Of course, your your harmophone or whatever, <laughs> ready to go on this one. Yeah, I play it just like this. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and now, Scott, you've been on the show, as I said, plenty of times, but I really wanted to have you on for this episode. We've kind of had stewing for a bit here. The interesting topic of Mr. Adam Sandler, whose birthday is this particular week we're releasing the show. Uh, so happy birthday, Mr. Sandler. I'm sure you listen, as you listen to all critics who have ever viewed your films, clearly. <laughs> Even despite sort of the critical backlash that's been going on with Sandler over the last particular like decade or so, you've always been a pretty big fan as long as I've known you, Scott. Why are you such a fan still to this day of Mr. Sandman? So I was born in 1988, and Lauren Michaels has always said that the SNL cast you like the most is the one you grew up with. And I grew up with the, the bad boy era, which included uh, Chris Farley, uh, Chris Rock, D- David Spade, and especially Adam Sandler. And I think around the time I grew up, he just had this sense of comedy and casual charm about him that almost appealed to the kid version of me the best because he has like the loudness, the goofy voices. He's great at singing. And that transferred into all of his comedy as he was coming out with uh, his seminal comedy classics, Billy Madison and and Happy Gilmore, which were really big on VHS. And he always kind of kept out that formula. And then I discovered how his type of humor kind of being more uh, skit based and scenario based rather than telling stand up even existed in his comedy albums. So from the beginning, I was always kind of into the Sandman. And uh, has that really stayed even as he's kind of been in the dregs as of recent with his comedies? So funny enough, the way, Tom, you and I bonded is that we were both kind of heartbroken Sandler fans because around the time of, like, the mid-2010s, I felt like he had reached his kind of low because he was still doing comedies, but they just didn't have any spark left to him. And then he would have kind of big moments because I would go back to his older catalog or check out his dramas and I could see his potential. And I was really riding on that high, especially lately because of his recent award-winning earnings. 
Though, after kind of doing this episode and doing some retrospect, I don't feel as much love these days. Oh no, he's lost that love and feeling. I'm so sorry, Sken. <laughs> he had to come to this horrible realization. Uh, but Adam, I'm sure there's not much love for you. Is there or was there any at some point for Mr. Sandler? Oh yeah, definitely, man. I was I was a huge, huge Adam Sandler fan. I, I was born in 83, so five years before Scott, but it hit me right at the right age. Like I was a teenager, you know, when his albums were out and Billy Madison and everything. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. I, I think I want to say I fell off with Sandler, like started getting a little tired of him, probably right around like 50 first dates, probably around there. And then there would be a couple gems here and there. But for the most part, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I hate Adam Sandler. I hate some of the movies he's done. But as far as he goes, you know, I, I don't really have any bad feelings towards him. He's just sort of like his shtick has carried him this far. So why change it? I mean, and when he does, he's really good at it. Like one of the features we'll talk about tonight or, you know, uncut gems and things like that. Like he does have range. But ultimately, it's his goofball shtick that's made him sort of the household name he's become. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a bummer sometimes when you see he just keeps going back to that well. And ultimately, they're still successful. That's why they keep making them. But it's like, ugh. Well, yeah, I think that's what's interesting about Sandler is despite, you know, a lot of people kind of painting him with a broad brush in terms of most of his comedies, things there is sort of distinct eras for his career. Because you, I would argue that even something like a Happy Gilmore is distinct from a 51st States. Because with, like, those earlier comedies that, like, a Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore, he's much more in, like, I'm doing silly, silly character shtick kind of thing. And then around the early 2000s, which is probably where I jumped onto him as a kid, with stuff like Mr. Deeds or even, like, a Little Nicky, some of those, like, you can tell that's his sort of transition point into going from sort of, like, very much character-distinctive weird comedy stuff into more traditional kind of laid-back leading man, and I think that also ended up morphing him into, like, rich dude who is so laid-back he's not really contributing any comedy to it. He's just kind of, like, watching his other friends just fumble around do stupid shit while he ends up looking like the cool laid-back dad who's kind of funny. And now it feels like he's kind of getting into a more of a shtick that, like, feels like it's returning back to him doing the character stuff, but in a more aggressive angle, like I would agree with an Uncut Gems. Uh, that feels like it's it's sort of harnessing, like, what people like about Sandler, which is that mixture of, like, good boy, like, he's seems very nice and earnest and sweet, but also there's an inner anger and rage that I think is very apparent in especially the one of the films we're doing tonight um, that sort of is, like, always bubbling under the surface. It's, that's what I think makes him work at his best when somebody can harness sort of like he's a good dude at his heart but also there's a lot of like rage and regret and sort of like an outsider quality that makes him endearing in a very sad sort of way even though adam sandler has gone through different phases of his career if you look at his filmography he has a lot of staples that I think appeal to him a lot because he loves doing movies about family or broken families or dysfunctional families and him trying to find love or him being someone who is aggressive or kind of a man child and trying to grow from there or maybe even being accepted as such. And that goes even into his more dramatic roles like Uncut Gems or Spanglish or Rain Over Me. It's just like he has a very peculiar formula to him, and by all accounts, it's like people love him. He, they've always loved him. He, His friends love him, that he's kept going on. I hear he's a sweet guy that people just love to work with, so it's just like his attitude has clearly opened doors for him and Hollywood, and that's what has made him so big, but – how much you judge him as an artist obviously is separate than how you much you might judge him as a businessman. 
Well, no, there's no denying that like he has established a pretty clear brand with like Happy Madison. Ever since I think it's been over twenty years now since they've been actually like producing movies. And from what I've heard, yeah, he, he seems like very professional and he seems very nice to everybody he works with. Um, it's like the only sort of bad word I heard anywhere near about him was when the Sony leaks happened. And Sony was like, we're really fucking tired of him. Like, there was a really weird, like, meeting he had when he was aggressively trying to get them to green, like, Candyland, which he was going to do at one point as an animated film. <laughs> I heard about him wanting to do Candyland. I think also he wanted to do a movie about Tonka trucks. Right, yes. There, there's a bit of that, which, 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 which would have been funny because he would have just been playing with him like, I'm going to twive my Tonka truck. <laughs> right, I'll that's run true. you over. Get out of the way! Yep, that basically. That that sounds exactly what it would be like. We don't need to see the movie, that's the pitch reel. But, um, let's go ahead and get into our two specific films we're talking about, which, at the end of our last episode, we picked a good and a bad feature uh, related to this talk of Adam Sandler. Um, I had the good pick, and we ended up picking Punch Drunk Love, uh, which is one of his early examples of kind of going to the more serious territory as our good pick. And then we have uh, Adam's pick, for a bad one, of uh, Jack and Jill, which uh, we'll talk about. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but let, let's do it. Yeah. Do the the first one. Let's go ahead and do the good one here. Punch drunk love. I wanted to ask you something. I don't like myself sometimes. I'm gonna go and eat tomorrow night. I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine, and I don't have a crying problem. Okay. Four blonde brothers came after me. What's the problem? One of your employees has been threatening me. Shut up! Shut up! I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. So Punch Drunk Love uh, came out October 11th, 2002, directed and written by Paul Thomas Anderson, who is sort of a, a big, critically acclaimed director who we've somehow never talked about on the show, interestingly enough. That is weird. That yeah, is weird that our first Paul Thomas Anderson feature is also an Adam Sandler vehicle. <laughs> That's very true, yes. But this was pretty weird for him at the time, because before this he had done uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, which were big, Oscar-nominated, critically acclaimed movies. And afterward he would do stuff like There Will Be Blood and <laughs> The Master, also big, critically acclaimed movies. This one sticks out very much like a sore thumb in his filmography, but he was very passionate about doing this with Sandler, like he was apparently a pretty big fan of the early comedies, and they're friends still to this day after working together here. He kind of set out to do sort of like an art house Adam Sandler movie, which I would argue this fits the bill of pretty well, but I was really fascinated, Scott, because I told you this was one of the picks we were doing, and you revealed that somehow in all of your grand Adam Sandler fandom, you had never seen this before, is that correct? That is correct. Because Punch Drunk Love came out in 2002, I was too young to see it in theaters. This was before the time I was a cinephile. I became a cinephile like late in the uh, double zeros. So when I went into this movie, I had heard everything about how this is like the great Adam Sandler performance. And at this point, I had seen so many facets of his career. And then you also have Paul Thomas Anderson, who is a critical darling and probably one of the best living filmmakers today. I, I think if I say that, no one would argue against it. When I picked this up on HBO Max, I watched it and I kind of let it enveloped over me. And at first, I was kind of unsuspecting in how it would play out because it has this very slow kind of buildup to it. And then just as it plays forth where you watch Adam Sandler emote more and you realize the depth of the situation and you feel the themes kind of pressing into it, I really came to appreciate just the beauty and the ingenuity of this film. Well, Adam, had you seen this before, and uh, how do you feel about it now? 
You know, I'd seen it in bits and pieces. I This is one of those where I thought I saw the whole thing, but I honestly was probably, I think I was getting confused with Spanglish because you got to figure it's been a long time since I've seen this. I, it, if I did see it in, in its entirety, it's when it first came out. Uh, so watching it this time, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I just don't think it's for me, man. Like I, I liked it enough. It just, I don't know, man. It, it was missing something for me. I don't know what it is. I honestly couldn't put my finger on it. I, I, I honestly found it kind of boring. I thought it was a little bit boring. And even at an hour and 35 minutes long or whatever it is, it felt really long to me too. Well, um, I remember seeing this because I, in a similar fashion, this guy heard a lot about it. Because like I mentioned, I was a fan of Adam Sandler's around this time. When I was younger, but I didn't see it at the time it came out. I probably saw this not too long before Funny People came out. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about this movie through, like, his first example of being um, kind of like a serious actor of sorts. And when I watched it then, and I still stick with this to this day as time has gone on, um, I think it is pretty much the best distillation of Sandler as a comedic persona, but also putting so much more earnest, like, heartfelt energy into it to the point where like, this is one of my favorite movies. Honestly, um, Sandler or Paul Thomas Anderson wise or anything like that. Um, I just think it's such an interesting, weird romantic comedy that feels very like sincere in terms of like the connection between these two people, but in a way that's very messy in a way that I appreciate that most romantic comedies don't even have. Like you look at even Adam Sandler's like sort of romantic comedies, like the stuff he's done with Drew Barrymore, which have been some of his better sort of like Sandler, Happy Madison-esque movies. But at the same time, those movies also have kind of like the traditional rom-com staples of like oh we're together for a bit and then we um have to like dissipate from each other and all this other stuff but what i like about this movie is it has some of that sort of formula to it but at the same time it doesn't feel like comes from some like contrivance necessarily it feels like it's more just from the fact of like this particular character the barry egan character that adam sandler plays is a sort of weird very awkward character who I completely believe in at every step, that, like, why he's this awkward, why he's this weird, why he's this antisocial. It feels so, like, well-realized by Sandler and Paul Thomas Anderson and just the entire cast. I, I think this is such a great example of how to make a romantic comedy but have it feel a lot more sort of heartfelt and messy and regrettable and even to a point where, like, by the ending of this movie, I don't think these two are going to be together that long, but I like the fact that they really have enough, at least, joy and cherish each other enough to try and keep it going for however long they can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's that's absolutely all there. So, a, I could have used a little bit more Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know that's not saying much about the movie itself, but I just I'm a huge Philip Seymour Hoffman fan, and I do think Sandler is quite good at it. I I do think he's he does give a sort of neurotic neurosis to it uh, in a very sort of believable way. Uh, especially in the scene like at his at the his sister's birthday party where everybody's just fucking messing with him and talking shit so he just explodes or at the restaurant when he explodes. I mean, I get it. I don't know. I just I, I to me, they weren't really believable as a couple. So I believe that in the hands of any other director, this whole concept, I think, wouldn't work. Because you have this delicate balance of Adam Sandler playing this very frayed kind of lonely guy in that the way he talks to to people is kind of frustrating because he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. No, 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 I don't want to do that. No, it's like it's he, he's always kind of questioning through life. It feels like he's been very listless and he has that all that pent up 
male frustration because he's just been like demeaned and lessened throughout most of his life. And it's not so much of a rom-com at first. It's more of like a character study. And I think as it slowly goes on and you see how he's developed and then how he changes as he meets Lena throughout time and how he starts to interact with other people as it goes along, that's where kind of like the Paul Th- Thomas Anderson and the fl- the very unique flourishes of the movie kind of come through. Adam, kind of compared to you, I thought there would be more Philip Seymour Hoffman or Louise Guzman as the movie would go on. And I was a little bit disappointed, but I feel like all Paul Thomas Anderson movies kind of work better on rewatch or as you kind of reflect and look back at all these different things, because I could really appreciate and see how this would be one of Thomas's favorite movies, because there's just so much here that makes it fascinating and very special. Well, and not to mention, like, I, I don't necessarily disagree that on paper, uh, him and Emily Watson, who plays Elena character, wouldn't necessarily be the most believable couple. But I think um, with, like, an Anderson, I think he knows that. I think he's very much playing with the fact that in any of the other Adam Sandler movies, like, the love interest stuff is usually what's so weak about them. Like, even the same year as uh, Mr. Deeds, where he's with Winona Ryder. And that relationship doesn't seem believable on any level because she's just like a top-notch reporter. But all of a sudden she's with like, oh, but he's so sweet and he has like a black foot that he can't feel anything for. Oh, I'm so in love with Adam Sandler in this movie. I think Anderson knows the fact that like with so many of these movies, the love interest stuff isn't really typically what is supposed to work. But I like the fact that with Emily Watson, unlike so many of those other... love interests and especially the previous movies to this, where Sandler's playing a much more cartoonish character... Like, Emily Watson is fully aware of, like, okay, this guy is very off-kilter, he is very weird, but I am sort of attracted to that in this weird way, but I totally believe her attraction to him much more, especially when things go along and you reveal more, like, there's that great scene where they do meet up in Hawaii, and they are in bed together for the first time, and she's just like, oh, I just want to scoop out your eyes, and I want to, like, chew on your cheeks and shit. That feels like something that would be, like, a really weird moment in an Adam Sandler movie, and it's still weird here, but it feels so much more earnest, and it feels like it's like she is a weird person. She's more together than a Sandler is as a person. They're both very weird people in a way that I totally believe would click once they actually have time alone together. There's something about the setup I quite like with their romance in that she's kind of into him automatically, but because he's been so lonely, he almost doesn't know how to react. So when like there's a great scene where a bunch of cacophonous things are going on where he's getting a phone call and his sister and Lena are asking about like, hey, what's with the pudding? What's with that? What's with that? And as the scene kind of keeps going on, all I can do is kind of focus on her and get the situation done. And then after they have their first date and then they leaves. Uh, he's walking by a hallway and someone says, hey, there's a call for you. And he's been getting calls all day. And Lena says, like, hey, just so you know, I would have kissed you just now. And then he just immediately goes back to her and just starts kissing her. I think it's so fascinating in this way that Anderson has decided to look at the perspective of love and loneliness with these two people and how they kind of have to show each other with assistance from the movie. I just I don't think I'm a huge fan of hers in general. Like, I think she's a good actress and all. But it, like I said, the chemistry just wasn't there for me in any way. So it was hard for me to sort of buy into it. Now, I did buy into the fact that they are both a little weird. So maybe they found each other because of that. Like, that, I think that's pretty clear. Again, you fucks. Both of you. <laughs> I, I, it just, it wasn't really, I don't know, man. It didn't click for me. It felt like there was, I mean, I guess not every movie needs to be 
exciting and have stakes and all that, but it felt like there was legitimately no stakes in this movie. You me. must be some kind of wedding singer fan then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You're right. That's exactly it. I will say though, as far as picking the Sandler good pick, th- this definitely qualifies because he is quite good in it. No, yeah, you get a lot of the sort of um, energy of like a young Al Pacino, who we'll talk about in a second. In, in terms of just like this guy who's on such a short fuse, but at the same time has enough er- like of this energy that you can at least see why people would find him like kind of sweet, kind of endearing. And there's a lot of like just naked awkwardness here that I think is like works on like a lot of the stuff that like you would be endeared to a Sandler, like the, the characters you play in SNL where you seem very bashful. You can see that translated really, like, tragically, endearingly, with, like, the f- sex phone call scene he has where he has no interest in the sexual aspect of it and is trying to avoid that. And it's just more of just like, but how are you doing? How's everything going? Are you all right? Like, it's it's more about trying to get emotionally invested in somebody when he doesn't really have that in his life. I just love the fact that he's so much more emotionally invested in this um, in a way that still has a lot of danger to it. It's not like he's just a total nice guy. He has, like, all this pent-up rage and anger. Like, I love how Anderson even kind of plays on some of these romantic tropes where, like, when he goes to Hawaii and he has, like, the, the one where he stands up for himself against uh, Mary Lynn Reichcomb, his sister. It's this, like, big sweeping moment, like, yeah, he's standing up for himself, but he says shit like, give me the fucking phone number, I'll fucking kill you, <laughs> and shit like that. Or for anybody else, or for anybody else, Gail the Snail. Right. Oh, Frost, shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's Gail Snail. <laughs> but, uh, no, that was, that was a really good scene. I did like that scene. Because it's like, dude, about time. Fuck. I couldn't handle it. I could not handle the browbeating this guy takes day in and day out. I said I would lose my fucking mind. Well, yeah, and I think what also works is that with all the other stuff, Anderson really gets you in the perspective of him as a character. With like, I love John Bryan's score for this movie, whether it is like the big sweeping romantic stuff or like the weird uh, pixelated, almost like eight bit ish like music that's going on. Particularly during the scene Scott was talking about earlier, where his sister brings over Emily Watson. There's like all this chaos going on back and forth, and all the stuff about like, hey, who what's the pudding, and are you coming to the party, whatever, all this other crap. Like, there's it builds up so much of the tension where you're in his perspective. Just wondering about, like, oh my god, I have so much to deal with, and, like, everything's going crazy, and the fact that Emily Watson ends up kind of, like, breaking through all of that, and just having a moment where it's like, hey, I would really like to go out with you, or the moment Scott's talking about earlier, I love when he's, like, leaving the lobby, and then gets the phone call, and then they do actually have their big romantic kiss. It's such a weird inversion of these kind of tropes that happen in romantic comedies, like the big sweeping gestures and all this other stuff that would be in a lot of Sandler comedies. It feels, like, so much more earnest and sincere from here. I, I did want to definitely ask Scott, where do you see sort of like the kind of inversions as well that they're doing on the earlier Sandler movies in this particular one? If you look back at movies like uh, Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore, like Adam Sandler is this character who is very frustrated and life didn't go exactly well for him. And he has like this absent mother figure. And that always is kind of there. It always kind of lingers in some way or another of like someone's dead or someone's gone or some or it's just totally not talked about. And here you have more of the dysfunctional family with all these sisters who kind of bully him down. And it's kind of like there's a lot of interesting gender dynamics here with what with his emasculation. They talk about how he wears the suit all the time and how how he likes it. And in a modern day perspective, it's it's kind of like this could go wrong, but there's a lot of thoughtfulness here that I appreciate. In fact, um, so something that's kind of like come up in a lot of modern day discourse is acknowledging that sex work is important. So it's kind of like 
when he calls the phone number to like have some kind of emotional decency, it's kind of like if we acknowledge that, then we have to acknowledge that some people are lonely and they're going to want to look out for people. And that's kind of like a grand thing of many of his, of his, of Sandler's movies. But in here, Anderson pulls it off. So you kind of get the, like the fullest scope of that. This is kind of halfway between like a Charlie Kaufman movie, but nowhere near as sad in that it gives you a lot of like sadness to it. And then it just explodes with big emotional love and feeling. So you feel that impact much more as you talked about with the John Bryan score, which I agree is incredible. It's it goes between like it's kind of pitching the scene and there's all these weird instruments playing and then it's very romantic. In fact, you hear a song playing as he's getting off the plane that's like, I need you, I need you. And I didn't feel like it left me hanging because the pace here is so much quicker than a normal Anderson movie. And that's what really kept me engaged, even though it felt like, you know, for a while it's the crime plot, then it's the romance plot. And then they decide to go back to the crime plot, which makes it very interesting. No, yeah, I, I love all the stuff with uh, the sex work stuff. It's interesting because Anderson paints that character a lot more, like, humanely than you would in, like, say, a Sandler movie. Like, in a Sandler movie, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up switching back. It's like, oh, it's, like, Peter Dante or one of those other assholes that pops up in all his movies in a wig or some bullshit. Like, those movies, we're watching a lot of them, are so much more, like, mean-spirited and shitty about people who are remotely different. Yeah. And this movie has a lot more investment, even for, like, that character, the Gloria character. I love the fact that we do see a shot of her, like, in her home, and she's clear, like, oh, she's living, like, a very sort of shitty, disparate life. And you have a bit more investment for her. Really, the only villain is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I agree is fucking so great (laughs) in this, like, three-scene part. He's so fucking phenomenal, where you get the intimidation, but also it's, like, on such a small-scale level. Like, when you first see him, you're like, oh, shit, is he gonna be, like, some kind of big crime boss? And he's a motherfucker who owns a mattress firm (laughs) type store. (laughs) He's so pathetic. Oh, he's just a scumbag. He's a weasel. I do love that they kind of build up, like, he's supposed to be big and intimidating, and then when Adam Sandler finally reaches up to him, their, their conflict is so good. Because I love the way they stand off against each other. And we haven't mentioned that. I I really love how this movie uses lighting and shadow and uses shadow and silhouettes for so many key scenes. And the one where he and Philip Seymour Hoffman are squaring off against each other. And Barry has that speech of like, I have love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you could imagine. And at first they, they're off when they walk away. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, you pervert. And he goes, oh, you want some now? You want some? No, no, no. That's that. <laughs> that's that it's so fucking good i agree yeah I, I also like the fact that like the the weird sort of self-confidence that barry ends up having after he ends up getting together with emily watson makes him also extremely dangerous like the bit where the brothers like near like hit them head on and she gets into the car accident and he immediately just uses that crowbar and beats the shit of them it's once again another example of like an adam sandler like typical comedy he would be like giving them wedgies and they would be like oh i pissed my pants like miles davis or some bullshit as opposed to here just like oh no he's just scary he's genuinely scary it's probably the best shot Adam Sandler scene with like where he's taking action because of how they show him breaking the windows and the other and the four other brothers there are, are like scared and freaking out. That's why I say about like this could go too far what with him like uh, finding his confidence, finding this masculinity to him. But I think the kind of like dreamlike kiltered perspective that's brought here kind of makes it all the more like emotionally visceral, but like very satisfying. 
Well, yeah, and plus it's so much more like the what's earned from him. It's not like a sudden masculinity. It's not like he's the Zohan now or some bullshit, like big, strong, confident secret agent. It's just that he can like fully say, like, I'm not going to let somebody hurt someone I love. And even then, I end up apologizing for hurting her on an emotional level, where it's like her big concern is that she, he left her at the hospital at this point, and he is so, like, regretful and sorry about that. And I love that whole, like, climactic sequence after all that, where he grabs the harmonium and then goes back up to her apartment and has this whole apology. And that hug that happens there, it's not a traditional, like, romantic sweeping thing. The, the music that's going on in the background is saying that, but it's much more of, like, this intimate hug that feels so beautiful and so earned. Leading up to even, like, the final shot of, like, her walking in as he's playing, and it's like, here we go. Once again, signifying, like, this relationship might not work out. It might not last very long. But they want to at least give it an honest go. That they have, like, all these adversities out of the way that they couldn't control beforehand. I just love all of that. And I also love, like you mentioned, the way that it's shot, particularly any of the really intimate moments are signified with, like, the lens flares that he uses um, that sort of, like, meld the the red of her clothing and the blue of his clothing and make it, like, this purple sheen. I just think that's a beautiful way of signifying just how, like, they're weird, they're kind of cracked people, but they, like, make each other a bit more whole when they're together with each other. I, I found that extremely touching. And the movie moves in such a way where it has those very colorful transitions that uses those colors and just kind of makes everything feel more like it, it knows it's kind of like this very romantic, weird fantasy. And it, and it just throws its heart out there for the audience. And then J.J. Abrams would watch this and we get Star Trek with the goddamn lens flares there. You guys happy? You see what this movie wrought? You fuck it. Yeah, Star Trek one's good. The first Star Trek's yeah, good. Yeah, the first Star Trek's yeah, good. I, no, that's yeah, fine. I, I like it. Yeah, I, like it. <laughs> I really enjoy that movie quite a bit, actually. I mean, it was really weird, though, when Bennett Cumberbatch, as Khan, was going like, Oh, Captain Kirk, a bougie bougie I did not like that particular affect. It would have been just as effective as the actual reveal. That's true, yes. I would have honestly liked it more <laughs> if that's what Khan's personality was. <laughs> yeah, me too. A lot more. <laughs> it's like he's dying, and it's like, That's something I should have known yesterday! <laughs> well, before we uh, head on to our next film, I do want at least want to quickly ask everybody, what do you think Adam Sandler should kind of hopefully bring back from this movie? Now it's been almost 20 years since he did this. What do you think he should bring back from this particular role that would make his future career a lot more investing and worth watching? Well, hey, he's not on fucking autopilot in this movie like he is in fucking everything for the most part, at least comedy-wise, that he's been in since. You know, you see more shades of this and like uncut gems and things like that, where he's actually he's trying to get to the reality of his character and it's not so out of control over the top. He does have the bone in him. Like he can pull off great performances. He's been given almost too much carte blanche to sort of do whatever he wants. And it's almost like, okay, you got to make us six movies. Well, by movie two, he's just, on. okay, let's just pump him out and get it done. It just seems like he, he doesn't really give a fuck anymore, which when you get paid as much as he does, it's probably pretty hard to give a fuck when people pay you to be a goofball. So people thought this is funny. I'm just going to do this 10 times and it's going to make a fuckload of money. I think something Adam Sandler has to learn is and that if you look at through all of his movies, if you look at like, uh, I don't know, like men, women and children and click and Spanglish is that. I think Adam Sandler makes the mistake of assuming that sentimentality and like schmaltzy, sticky corniness is the same thing as like giving emotion. 
And Adam Sandler, in like even in bad movies, when he emotes and he puts himself all into it, he has that vulnerability. He has that range to really be a great character actor and embrace those aspects of him to be respected. I think he he was happy to get all of this acclaim from Uncut Gems and even from this film. And I think that's something that I wish he kind of taken more seriously. I know it's easy for him to make these movies and help his friends out to just like, you know, keep the good times rolling. But he's just done so much of them and he's just done this process so much many times that it's like when you release those films to us, especially when people can see the value of your talent, it's a little disappointing. He is very capable of working with more great auteurs and people to really bring that like dramatic character touch to him that would that would shine. Yeah, it was especially interesting doing some research for this episode, too, that was like, oh my god, we almost had this, was he was originally hired to be the Jamie Foxx part in Collateral. That's, like, who Michael Mann originally wanted in that part, which would have been fascinating, um, especially if he had some of that, like, uncut gems energy at that point. And then another one was he was the original choice Quentin Tarantino wanted for the Bear Jew part in Glorious Bastards. I would be so fascinated to see especially something much more intimidating like that from him. Yeah. I definitely see that. Yeah, I, I definitely could too. To to have him play the heavy, I, I think that could be something pretty interesting. You even see some of that energy here when he does like destroy that bathroom, or when he uh, beats up the four blonde brothers, or face off against Philip Seymour Hoffman. All that's there, but it's mixed with a lot of that earnest energy that I still am really endeared to in this particular case. Um, it's it's like I, said, I think it's uh, we'll move into final thoughts here, and I'll just briefly state, like I mentioned, it's one of my favorite movies ever. I feel somewhat of a kinship to like the Barry Egan character. Um, in that, like, whenever I felt, like, vulnerable and sort of lonely in my life, I kind of have a connection to that particular character, even though he goes to these wide extremes I would never go to, like, destroying property <laughs> to the certain degree he does, or being the shit people with a crowbar. It's not my style, necessarily. Uh, but I find it so, like, enriching to, like, see Sandler kind of take a lot of that huge, high emotional feats that he would do in some of these other comedies and switch that instead of early on in his career when he was being more cartoonish into being somebody who's very cracked, has a lot of like hard edges that would need to be somewhat sanded off, but he at the same time is still willing to be embraced and loved by somebody who also has some weird shit. Like I even love the fact that in during the supermarket scenes where you see like a red figure following around Adam Sandler, it is Emily Watson. So she even had interaction yeah. even at that point. I love the fact that you can even see some of these details to a certain point. Like this movie, despite being very simple and bare bones, compared to especially a lot of like Paul Thomas Anderson's other movies, you can see so many more details that really let the characters breathe out and do so much more. And that's, if anything, what I would want to see more of. I would recommend, if you like this one, to watch um, on Netflix, speaking of the variety. He did find the Noah Baumbach film Meyerowitz Stories, which he's in. Um, and he plays the uh, brother to Ben Stiller and the son of Dustin Hoffman. That movie is incredible, and does a lot of these similar things here in this movie, but on a more grounded level. You have that capability. Give somebody like a Noah Baumbach or some other filmmaker a chance and show off these kind of sides again. But, Adam, final thoughts. Like I said, I think it's it's a fine movie. I don't hate it or anything like that. I think it's a perfectly fine movie. I think Adam Sandler is absolutely sort of the shining star of the movie. Hoffman's right up there. For an Adam Sandler movie, for a good choice, I think this definitely fits the bill. I'd like to see more of this type of Adam Sandler work. If you want to see a good dramatic Sandler, this, this is a good one to go to. And it is only an hour and a half long. I know it's that felt longer to me, but obviously I'm the minority out of these three uh, talking heads that we have here. And uh, 
So I think it's I think it's just fine. Well, and Scott. For the longest time, I had neglected myself uh, to watch this, and even with the setup, it's like, why is it called Punch Drunk Love? And then you think about it, it's like, oh, Punch Drunk means you're stupefied in your days and confused from brain damage. And it has that kind of perspective and flow and creative flair that fits that tone with Adam Sandler playing this very damaged, but I think sort of relatable and sort of fascinating character and how he kind of grows and develops because of how much he's had to experience loneliness and the lack of love and then discovering that and just feeling this freeing presence. I would very much say it's the best Adam Sandler performance. Even with how good he can be, you get everything here. And the romance, even though it is very unconventional, it is appealing so I think even if you were, have a casual interest in Paul Thomas Anderson, because even just with th- those two working, we, we've talked about the score, the cinematography, the coloring, so many aspects of this are so wonderfully crafted. And even if you have trouble kind of grasping it at first, you just kind of let the dreamlike qualities of it take over. And I would even say if you've watched Uncut Gems and you like that, this is a great companion piece. Like that's the more demented version but this is a bit more of the happy introspective one in the way like when we talked about the warehouse scene where everything goes on i would not be surprised if the safety brothers watched that and got an idea so yeah i am very happy that he made this movie even though it was unsuccessful because it really tapped into great potential well yes now that we had at least somewhat kind things to say here we should get into our next feature but first here's a great eso show you can queue up right after hours Hi, I'm Joe Heath. And I'm Tony Heath. And we've been watching Doctor Who for five years. So that makes us experts. Probably. I once heard a guy say that he listened to a four-hour podcast by an expert, which made him an expert. So we're experts. Definitely experts. And you can be an expert, too. All you have to do is listen to... The Watchathon of Rassilon. It's a podcast. That we make. Together. Sometimes with friends. Listen to it. Or else. The Watchathon of Rassilon. A proud member of the ESO Network. All right, and here we go, everybody. We're uh, heading into the 2011 masterpiece, Jack and Jill. In every family, there's one person who drives you a little crazy. But during the holidays, there's no escaping it when it's your sister. How we doing? Your twin sister. Are you going bald? Huh? This fall. Compliments of Mr. Pacino. What? This is insane, man. You gotta call him. Oh, will you stop already? You know all he wants to do is play Twister with your sister. So, Jack and Jill uh, came out November 11th, 2011. Uh, you know, the 11-11-11, never forget. Um, where uh, we got Jack and Jill, um, as directed by Dennis Dugan, who um, had collaborated several times with Sandler. This was the seventh time he directed one of his movies. And uh, also, he was an actor before this, who you might know, horror fans, as the guy who shoots all the werewolves at the end of The Howling. This is the movie where Adam Sandler plays twins. He plays both Jack and Jill, uh, performing a dual role, as uh, many great comedic talents had done beforehand. Uh, and, uh, yeah, this was a movie I remember when it came out being so distraught over because I was someone, one of the few who had seen funny people. And this is one of those where, in Funny People, there are a lot of, like, things where his character in that movie, who is a big, like, Hollywood comedy star, did a bunch of movies that looked really terrible for hire. This movie, it feels like one of those bad joke movies just extended into a long feature-length, endless, endless comedy. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. This joins the great pantheon of, you know, Jeremy Irons playing against himself against in Dead Ringers and, you know, all those great, great split screen moments. And, and it just, it, it just shits all over all of them. This, this is just unapologetically, egregiously awful and offensive. And this is like, to me, his last gasping breath at uh, theatrical comedies. Because after this, he, he didn't have many more. And then it was pretty much all Netflix shit. This is just so bad. And it's so, so 2011, especially with some of the cameos we get. And Al Pacino, fuck. Oh, God damn it. Just, well. <laughs> I will say this most with Pacino, he has seemed less committed to other movies. Weirdly, he seems like the only person who is somewhat committed to a very terrible joke. Like, I'll, I'll yeah. say that much, because I've seen him sleepwalk in other things. This doesn't feel like a sleepwalk, this just feels like, oh, he's kind of invested in making fun of himself, but for the absolute wrong project, on every single level. Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Like, the few jokes that I, like, I laughed at in this movie were Al Pacino, to some degree. Those were the only things I found somewhat remotely funny, were some of his bits. You got a laugh out of this? I To be fair, like it would be a laugh after about 20 minutes of deep sighing and then another 20 minutes of deep sighing. <laughs> like they were very few and far between. It was a desperation laugh. Yeah. There's a bit of Stockholm syndrome, I'm not going to lie, but Scott, especially I want to hear from you Mr. Sandler, a connoisseur as you are. Is this one the worst to you? I thought it was. It's pretty close though. Tom, similar to you, I saw funny people when it came out. I I love it. And it, it's you think this that would be the turning point because it's a reflection on Adam Sandler's life and his career and his influence. And it even has some of his touches here and there story wise. And then he didn't stop. He went heavy in Happy Madison promoting his buddies. And then he had just go with it. And then this movie and this was the movie. It's like, what the fuck? Everyone was like, OK, you're just going to go back to your normal shit. And I had the curiosity to see it in a theater and i remember it's like this is not funny and it's kind of annoying and it's frustrating and i i remember very distinctly the only thing i enjoyed about it to a degree was al pacino because he's he's invested he's pointing himself out there into it then it was a melange of not watching adam sandler movies he comes back and i'm interested into him again and i watched jack and jill for this podcast and then it's just like a switch went off and then I remembered every single bad thing I remember about Adam Sandler movies put into this movie. It is so frustrating in the sense that it is egregiously unfunny. It's lazy and it has all of his qualities where he doesn't want to go too, too disturbing, but he kind of wants to be sentimental and it doesn't work. And what's the most annoying about this movie is that it doesn't even have the decency to be consistent. Well, I would say there are a few that are necessarily worse, um, but this would be like in bottom five territory for sure. 100%. I would say That's My Boy is a bit more egregiously awful to me. Oh, that's, it my also boy just... no, that's my yeah. That's, that's my boy worst. is worse. I would even say A Pixels is worse just because kind of wasting a somewhat interesting concept and also doing horrible things like with 
Josh Gad fucking Kubert. That's the thing that happens in that movie. Dude, mm-hmm. let's put it this way. I didn't I couldn't even get through Pixels. I had just heard how bad Pixels was, and then I heard the random things, and then Tom's in the movie, so it's just like I would be biased. So. <laughs> right, exactly. Josh Gad's there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's just like I, I took the time to kind of skip some. And there's like I could see some people like liking some happy Madison ones. Like not all of Adam Sandler's nineties movies are good. I have very big soft spots for Waterboy, and I could see why like maybe a family would like a movie like Grown Ups or uh, I liked I watched the week of which I thought was tolerable and this has that just that like you want to be a family movie you want to say things about family but you don't genuinely believe it in the way that's like Adam Sandler is playing a good happy version of himself and then he has another version of himself that you can, that the movie can't decide like no she's she's nice she's sweet she's she just wants to be loved and then it's like eh, this fucking ugly bitch and she's just condescending and mean and she doesn't listen yeah. and she's intrusive and the and it just doesn't know what it wants to do and she sweats a lot <laughs> that's that's the thing the jack character is one like typical adam sandler in pilot mode not giving a shit just in the background like oh look she's being stupid i can't believe it and in theory you would want jill to be someone who's like kind of like socially awkward but at least is someone who it's like well she's trying her best it's like no she's awful to everybody like she makes fun of a homeless person and makes these indian jokes about the adopted son and also there's it's like oh you're both horrible people we just put you both in a rocket ship and blast you off into the sun I hate both and, of you. And, and it's frustrating because, like, maybe if they made it meaner where they had an animosity to each other or they played up more of the sweetness and that Jack was a guy, nice guy. But it's like, no, he's mean. And the only reason he's kept around is because Katie Holmes and the children are like, no, we like her. She's goofy. She's she's uh, eccentric. And it's like this only works because the movie says, like, no, no, this is this is what we feel. This is what we believe. And. It, it's so disingenuous. It's so just reminding me of like why this element makes people mad about Adam Sandler because he not only is he on autopilot, but you see all the people come back. So he's worked with Dennis Dugan again. He has he's working with Steve Corin, who he's worked with since the '90s and SNL in his albums. He has all of the buddies. He's got like Peter Dante and Alan Covert and Lauren Dolan and and uh the the guy who plays like the Cajun guy from the water boy and david spades there and nick swartz in there i'm just like god just get over it you donate money to them as a gift don't make a fucking movie this is much more of like in the sandler rotation of just like oh we gotta like have everybody get a job and have everybody work on like the flattest looking movies like we talked about punch drunk love and how great it does like immersing you in the colors and all this other stuff and just how like flat every single shot of this movie is like this is the best example of like what studio comedies like do at their most base level like we have to have this be theatrical so we might as well put this out like i'll honestly say there's a fair amount of the netflix movies that he's done since this that look better as movies and those have even less right to be (laughs) look cinematic to some degree oh yeah as this one does oh i completely agree i completely agree this is a stupid paint by the numbers sort of formulaic uh, dumb comedy, not even necessarily because it's Adam Sandler, which is a stupid fucking cash grab of a comedy in every way. I mean, the way it's shot, the way it's filmed, the way it's acted, the character dynamics, the scenarios, everything. This is just on every fucking level. I, I mean, like you guys said, Pacino, gotta give him, yeah, I guess you gotta give him some credit because at least he's attempting to poke fun at himself here, but like you said, Thomas Mann, did he pick the wrong fucking vehicle to do it in? I'm just so tired of Adam Sandler having in his movies 
these inexplicably hot wives with uh, these, and he treats them all like shit. His whole family treats him like shit. You know, at the end, everybody's all back together and they love him and he loves sports. God can't forget Adam Sandler loves sports. This movie is so ridiculously stupid. And it has so many like awful punching bags. Like the Nick Sportson character oh. is so much of that. We're just like, oh, we're just using you to make fun of like your rat face or that really weird scene where they have the party for Jack and Jill. And like, he just says like, oh, I'm an atheist. And John McEnroe comes in like, what? You don't believe in God? What's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Yeah. I know. I know. It yeah. was frustrating. I can't overstate how unfunny this is. Cause I've watched a lot of fat Sandler movies and they have like something to them or they look interesting or there's a setup that's interesting. And this doesn't got it. The jokes end on constant like wet farts that Adam Sandler doesn't even go a big emotion to. There's a bit where it's like his little kid catches him and he just goes, eh, shut up. And I'm like, at least shout at him. Just be loud. Be, you can't be... even shout shut up like we used to like. You have to like quietly say it. Or he'll have the like the weird thing where it's like, oh, I'll have my offensive jokes, but given it's 2011, we'll find a way around it with uh, Eugenio Derbez, who is like a big sort of comedy star in uh, Mexico and is here as like the, the gardener guy who keeps making bad jokes about like, you know, Mexican immigrants. But he's like, I'm kidding. Get it? Because... I can do it because I'm Mexican guy. And then they go to the big family reunion, which makes it all the worse, like so much worse. Which by the way, it's even inconsistent there because he's like, Oh, there's my, there's my father Juan and my uncle Juan and my grandfather Juan. I'm kidding. And then he introduces children. It's like, Oh, this is Jose, Jose and Joselita. It's like, that's not a joke though. You, you can't even follow that. You can't even follow these basic joke structures and that would be a character that rob schneider would probably play in a different movie so you have just this bad comedy there that's just drifting on from annoying characters and this it, it's only like consistent when it has these bad running jokes like there's one thing where jill doesn't know the movie it's like oh we're on that boat like that movie the one with leonardo dicaprio oh the one with the iceberg and, and it's you like mean titanic like, oh and then it's like there's the sweat stains and then the boy has a thing where he tapes stuff to him and the girl has a thing where she has all these dolls and then there's this stupid thing with like they have a twin language which is like adam sandler taking his goofy voice and then trying to make it a joke and it's the most unfunny thing there you crank this out in like a weekend on like cocktail napkins and just like fuck it we'll we'll make a movie there it wants to be sentimental and it wants to have a heart but the heart is so black and i feel like if you touch it you'll get a you'll get horribly diseased you'll get the plague this is this movie is like <laughs> encrusted over the plague uh basically yeah it, it just feels so much more cynical in a way that like some of the other happy madison movies like i would say you know rewatching a lot of them something like a little nicky which is not a good movie whatsoever oh, has a lot of these yeah. same kind of issues but at least, like, oh, he's doing somewhat of a character. There are big special effects and production design elements to this that at least feel like they're somewhat trying to do something here. As opposed to, this movie is so very flat in terms of everything. They just came up with the basic concept of, like, oh, hey, Adam can play his own twin sister. And that's all the effort that went into this, is, like, having him dress up as a yep. sister and having the few shots where they're together in the same scene, which are very few and far between. Um, just because, like, you can tell, like, I don't want to have that much energy to do this. Only for, like, a couple shots we'll end up doing this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it sounds like they were sitting around in a boardroom. Maybe. Probably not. Probably some asshole's garage. With post-it notes. And they just wrote down silly ideas and put them on a board. And then they just do darts. And they landed on 
Adam Sandler plays his own twin sister with Al Pacino. And that's like it. And that's their idea. And here we go. And they just fucking, like Scott said, wet fart this fucking movie out. Which, by the way, there's so many just unnecessary fart jokes in this fucking movie, too. It's nonstop farting. It's it's ridiculous. But it's just, it's so, so stupid that they literally rely on those aforementioned cameos to get a chuckle out of you. Which are, and like, it, as Adam mentioned, like, some of them are very weird now in context. Like, Jared Fogel has sham, a cameo. The ShamWow uh, guy. Sh- Bill, Billy Blanks from Tybo. John McEnroe is in it. Shaquille yeah. O'Neal is in it. Uh, Regis Philbin is in it. And this was his last film performance. Uh, Dana Carvey's in it. That was the idea, though. Oh, you'll laugh because these guys are in it. No, dude, that doesn't make it funny. And the thing is, he has been trying that tactic for a long time. Just to throw in these random celebrities. Like, John McEnroe's in, like, I think three or four Adams. Yeah, like Mr. Deeds, he was in as well, a few others. I think he just took yeah. all the wrong lessons from the Bob Barker thing in Happy Gilmore. Which was funny. Because it was a subversion of Bob Barker. Because it's like, oh, sweet Price is Right guy, and he beats the shit out of Adam Sandler. <laughs> that's actually a funny joke. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's absolutely what it is. You're 100% right. He took something that worked one time and just fucking ran with it. Ran with it. Yeah, I, I gotta wonder, it's like, Dennis Dugan's gotta pay, pay off alimony for his third wife. Or, it, it's like, he must have saved Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler's life or something. It's just, that's why he keeps him... In the in the payroll, but he's constantly putting Rob Schneider in things. He's constantly putting David Spade in things. He's constantly put. He's very faithful to the people he likes. I mean, we all look. Rob Schneider's no good. Okay, he's never been good, and yet he still pops up in almost every Adam Happy Madison picture. David Spade is terrible. Nick Swartzen is not a lead actor at all. He's got his own fucking movie. Yeah, also, I'll, I'll say like uh, Chris Rock is funny. He can't act though. He can't act at all. He's a terrible actor. Kevin. G- and every time you see him in one of these movies, Chris Rocky, you just feel like, man, why the fuck are you here? Rodolph well, 2 was to pay his fucking divorce settlement. You oh, and, and, and Kevin James was also there so he could have a that's, Chris Farley replacement. But that's, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's good for these guys that they get to work, and it's really sweet, kind of a sweet thing that he does that. Like, these are the guys he came up with on Saturday Night Live. They're his friends. But at what point do you have to look at it as, like, this is not the right decision for either this character, this role, this movie, this director. And he just doesn't do that. Yeah, it also doesn't help that with like a Rob Schneider, it's also like Scott kind of mentioned that we would just give him these roles of just like, oh, you play this random ethnicity that you don't belong to doing at all. <laughs> at all. Yeah, it's just a big case of enabling. Like Adam was kind of mentioning this at the start of us talking about Jack and Jill, this feels like the beginning of the end of sort of his box office reign that he would have for a while. Because after this would be stuff like Just Go With It or Grown Ups 2, which did pretty well, but were also like kind of like slowly starting to face out. Until you get to like a Pixels was like a pretty big bomb at that point is when he started transitioning over to Netflix and all that stuff was going over the Sony stuff. And I'll, I'll say, like, his Netflix stuff has been obviously very hit or miss, given sometimes you get, what is it, The Ridiculous Six, or sometimes oh. you also get something like, mm-hmm. I, I watched Murder Mystery, which I hadn't seen before, that one I think is, like, the platonic ideal of a Netflix movie, and then it's like, oh, this is much better than I would have expected, and it's totally fine and forgettable, and I feel like having someone like a Jennifer Aniston who feels like she has a lot more agency as a love interest is probably better for him than having some of these other, like, random people, like Katie Holmes, who's a fucking prop in this movie. 
Oh, she's so frustratingly annoying, too, in the sense that, like, so much of this movie is almost like enabling people or emotionally blackmailing people, which is a slight kind of follow through with some Adam Sandler movies. But this thing even annoyed me where it's like Jack actually comes up with the idea of like, oh, you know what? I should find a love interest for my sister. And then Katie Holmes goes, no. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't get involved with her life. The premise of the movie is her being lonely and her and her family doesn't love her, except Katie Holmes won't adopt her. They don't even have like any intimate scenes where she talks to him. It's just like, oh, he's she's great. She has fun. The kids laugh at her because she's stupid. Oh, and, and don't and we have to have that so we can have Norm MacDonald have a whole elaborate date sequence with her where it's like, oh my god, she's disgusting and awful. I have to hide in the bathroom. He and they don't even let him be funny. I know Norm MacDonald is still very, very funny, and it's just like, nope, nothing. But the one thing that is notable and I feel like has something there is as we've alluded to is Al Pacino because I think the premise of Al Pacino being into her because she's a lady from the Bronx and that's where he did grow up. And there's all he he's, he's bringing something there that does feel kind of genuine and even kind of like sense of a womanish and just kind of like his manic kind of attitude and relation to her. And he wants to kind of woo her. She's just not into him just, for reasons, even though he is kind of creepy and manic, he at least gives something here that I could latch onto as like an interesting plot. Yeah, okay, I, I'll give you that. But his his whole character angle and his whole dynamic is he's he's in love with Jill or whatever, and she wants nothing to do with him. She creeped out by him. She finds him repulsive or whatever. Then he basically becomes a stalker in every way, right. and then her brother, the dickhead that he is does what he does and dresses up as her and does it. I mean, it's just, everybody in this movie is awful. There's no redeemable character in this whole movie. That's, that's what makes it so bad. Cause if it was just Adam Sandler playing his twin sister and doing the silly voices or whatever, they're getting in hijinks or pranking each other or something silly like that. It wouldn't be good, but you know, at least like kids could maybe watch it and find it kind of funny, or you might get a chuckle out of it as a family movie. But there's nothing in here for anyone. Everybody is a horrible person or an awful racial stereotype. I agree that like everybody's pretty awful, but at least Pacino commits to it in almost like a comedy thrillery kind of way. Where like there's scenes like when he's doing his Hamlet performance and he gets the phone call and he's just like, Did you give me the girl? Did you give me the girl? <laughs> like he's weirdly disinvested in it, makes it at least like he's once again got some life in him at this point when he's doing shit like Righteous Kill and other movies that are just not anything like he's that he's giving nothing whatsoever as opposed to he's weirdly getting invested in this that i think makes some of those jokes funny like the bit where she hits the sick ball and she's like oh i'm sorry that i get your oscar you have plenty of those i'm sure you'd think so but surprisingly not <laughs> like shit like that i found kind of funny in the middle of just a wasteland of nothing I, I chuckled at that one scene with the where he's playing Hamlet and he answers the phone because there's a bit where a stagehand goes, hey, I'll take the role. And he goes, no, 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 you stay back. They didn't come for you anyway. And that was a throwaway <laughs> line that made me laugh. When he pops up his Don Quixote at the end. Okay, that part was just weird, but <laughs> it, it, it was the most interesting part of that terrible ending to just go like, oh, she's not the worst. Yeah. yeah. And, and this also has those tenets of like the, the mom is dead. Uh, the the kids are too cute and insufferable. The fa the two sisters hate each other, and they they only kind of like each other. Like even at one point, she goes like, "Oh, I know he emotionally abuses me." And it's like, talk about that then. Oh, oh, you're not you're not mature enough to talk about these issues, movie. Just uh, just 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 give it up. 
Well, speaking of giving it up, we might want to like close our discussion on Jack and Jill, who we're just gone into stark raving madness as I expected. So quick final thoughts, Adam, on Jack and Jill. It's egregiously bad, and it's lazy, and there's no redeemable characters in it. It's offensive on so many levels, even as just a comedy fan or a movie fan or even an Adam Sandler fan. Uh, is it his worst movie? No, I, I I don't think so, but it's definitely in, I'd say, the the top three to five of his worst films. It's really, really awful. And ultimately, I mean, honestly, the only reason I think I even remember as much as we are talking about now is because I just recently watched it. I'm not going to remember any of this movie in like six months. It's it's just so forgettable too, because there's no funny bits. There's no nothing. I might remember that there was a movie where Adam Sandler dressed up as his sister and Al Pacino did a Dunkin' Donuts bit. But guess what? I remember that from the trailer. So the movie is nothing. It's just, it's a vapid void of comedy and it's just garbage. The Dunkachino thing I was aware of and was terrible and awful, but I do like the final like interaction with him and Sandler and his response was just, burn this, all copies, destroy every single one, <laughs> never let this happen to the public. I, I thought that was at least a decent joke to end on. Don Cacino is is like, it's almost, it's so bad, it's kind of enjoyable. In fact, Don Cacino is a meme now, to a degree. Once again, it feels like it's a fake thing from like a funny people fake movie. That's what it feels like. This is so surreal that it can't actually be a real thing. But Scott, your final thoughts on Jack and Jill overall. Uh, this was painful the first time I saw it. And then when I saw it again, I was just so disappointed all over again and frustrated that he took the time to make this film about this very tired, dated premise, and it's just suffering and annoying and irritating. Whenever a film fan tells me that the worst thing you can do is just be mediocre, I tell them, fuck you, you're wrong. Because if you are like this movie that is awful and bad and unfunny, it doesn't even consistently follow its rules or setup, and it's boring, and it's all the horrible things in the world, then no amount of like generic blockbuster could be as bad as this. This is just one of the worst that Adam Sandler has done, which is saying something because of how much he's done. I'm very saddened and frustrated that he had all this buildup, he made this, and even after doing his great films, he just might just relapse to, to fall back into silliness. It's not necessarily the worst, but it sort of feels like it's the beginning of the end. But then again, you also can't ever quite count Sandler out, because like even after this, he would do other sort of like serious movies, like even before in Uncut Gems, he would do stuff... Um, like Men, Women, and Children, the Jason Reitman movie, or The Cobbler, which are both not good movies, but at the very least feel like, okay, you're failing very hard, but at least you feel like you're kind of reaching for something, as opposed to Jack and Jill is just really coasting. Like, this is, like Adam mentioned, very autopilot coasting. This does not feel like a real movie. This barely feels like anything that would be in, like, on a gas station TV, let alone a fucking theater big screen. Um, it just feels like it's such a sad indictment of like how far down he could go and how much he's just like wasting money on not anything that looks flashy but just like let me give money to people who are faithful to me um let me put some people in here who are somewhat talented so i can you know exploit them for my own way of like making offensive jokes or even at least like getting a pacino who's kind of trying and kind of like doing something kind of funny at points with it but just wasting all of that potential on such a disastrously limited premise that's uh, pretty goddamn awful. 
But that's the end of our two films we've been discussing here. Uh, but we'll have some feedback to read here and also picking to do for next week's episode, so stay tuned. Uh, first, let's read the feedback, which every Monday at DETV Pod, we ask you, hey, what's your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic that we're doing? And so we asked you about Adam Sandler, and uh, you all responded here, including James Rodriguez, who says, uh, best, Punch Drunk Love, The Wedding Singer, Hotel Transylvania, Worst, The Cobbler, Eight Crazy Nights, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, Jack and Jill. Uh, Josh Schumacher saying, uh, I'm going to go with the generic answers and say best, uncut gems, and worst, Jack and Jill. Joel Copeland, at Real Joel Copeland on Twitter, says, uh, best would be Punch Drunk Love, which, like Uncut Gems, a close second, uh, takes Sandler's persona of impotent rage and gives it character. Uh, worst would be I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, which spends an hour making gay jokes and then magically becomes a movie about tolerance. Jonathan Habnokale says, It's harder to say which Adam Sandler movies... I like now because of my waned interest in Sandler's style of comedy and, and of my nostalgia for certain jokes that worked on younger me. It's not saying much that Uncut Gems is Adam Sandler's best movie in a decade. It also shows that we could have had so much more. Uh, everyone can pull Jack and Jill or Grown Ups for the worst of Sandler, but right over me's schmaltzy melodrama stuck with me far longer than the latest Netflix drop. And then uh, Ryan Quarterman says, do both parts on Sandy Wexler. All right. <laughs> Once again, with all the jokes. Sandy Wexler, that kind of fits because that one of his Netflix movies is the most uneven to me. Like, I think there's parts of the movie that feel actually kind of earnest and interesting and like an actual fun, like, insider baseball film industry comedy. But then on the other side, it's so long. It's like two and a half hours fucking long, and it doesn't need to be. That movie is like Uncut Gems, but a PG rating. So it's very safe and it's very Sandler, <laughs> but there's highlights and lowlights. Yeah, that one's pretty weird. Now, uh, Scott, as the, the connoisseur, um, what would you say are some of the best and worst, especially of, like, the Madison movies for Sandler? Okay, if you got 50 minutes, uh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> you got five, go. Okay, okay. Of course, we've covered the best two, Punch Drunk Love and Uncut Gems. Uh, I'm a big fan of Funny People. Everyone says it's too long, and, and I agree with that, but I think it has this grounded sentimental base that I think really works for it and has this approach that the Judd Apatow formula works for Sandler. The first hour and a half, I would say, is a pretty great movie. And yeah, then after yeah. that, once we get to like the Leslie Mann stuff is where it kind of like starts to dip for me. Uh, I would say um, Happy Gilmore is probably my favorite from his classic comedy because it's like it has the best setup. It has the most memorable quotes. There's so many funny characters and bits with Shooter McGavin and Chubbs Peterson. And I, I just love it even worse and all just over the top. You also mentioned earlier uh, a Meyerowitz stories by Noah Baumbach, which is a really great movie that Sandler is really good. I would say Ben Stiller is even better in that movie, yes. but the way that they kind of grow and develop from there has that like fractured family, like trying to figure things out, but in a way that feels very honest in quite a way that I think Sandler never really covered covered up to that point. There's a lot of great drama, but also like particularly there's a great comedic sequence that involves him and Stiller um, beating the shit out of a car. But they're two oh, yeah. like, dudes in their forties. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> oh yeah, and I and I break it one moment when uh, uh, Stiller and Sandler are giving like the speech in front of a, of in front of like a college. One of them just breaks down crying, and it's just like, oh damn, you feel it. Uh, James Rogers said, uh, "Wedding Singer," which which is cute. I I can see why people like it. it. It's like him and Drew Barrymore had a nice chemistry, but it's not a very high stakes movie. But also, I think Hotel Transylvania, all of them are very overrated. I just think Sandler is doing a great voice and a really good performance, but those films are very pat and simple, and it, they have like the grown-ups feel to them just skinned on with animation. In fact, the second and the third one are so like the grown-ups movies that it's just like, man, what, what the crap ever. 
Um, I mean, I can agree with you to some degree with the second one, but I also think you're counting out Jendi Tartakovsky, who did stuff like Dexter's Lab and Samurai Jack. I think he puts a lot of rubber band cartoon energy into, especially the first and third one. I think it makes them pretty fun, despite, I agree, kind of being lackadaisical. I still find mm-hmm. those movies like it to be entertaining to some degree. But I know, Scott, at least at some point, you were a defender of his other animated project he did well before, Hotel Transylvania. Are you oh, still a fan of Eight Crazy Nights? To a degree. To a degree. Like there, I, okay, to give you an idea how much I love Eight Crazy Nights, Adam, I watched this movie three times in theaters on the same weekend. So you're responsible for like a third of its box office at that time, basically. <laughs> Well, I, I had that extra bit of Adam Sandler, like, fandom there because I was like, no, you see, Whitey isn't annoying because he's a character in this comedy album he did. So I understand the context. He did the voice of Eleanor. He's putting a lot of work into it. The animation's pretty. I like, I, and I do like the songs. And I think there is a sentimental core to it that genuinely works. The problem is just that it's too gross and vulgar. Like, if you remove yeah. that, if you remove the grossness and the vulgarness and the shit jokes. It's a 10-minute movie. <laughs> It's it's a ten minute movie, but it would be good. I, I will definitely agree at the very least that like the animation is quite beautiful, which is so sad given it's also one of like the last big hand drawn animated movies that came out. It feels like that was part of like the thing that killed hand drawn animation was like the failure of that and some of those like lesser Disney movies around that time. And it's really also very sad because like it was a bunch of the animators who did like Iron Giant came on to that movie and you can tell it has like some yep. of that great character oh, detail yeah. and it's like oh my god you're wasting on such a terrible fucking movie yeah yeah it's, oh, just, it's like... awful it's it's no scott shut up <laughs> it's awful. No, no, no i will not shut up because adam sandler has way worse movies and and ones with way less ambition than eight crazy nights i would say eight crazy nights even has ambition and some i i feel like genuineness that sandler put into it I, i'll do that He's at least doing, like, an animated movie, which felt different for him at the time, as opposed to also not too far off of that, you get a click, which I rewatched, and click is, like, so much more offensive to me, because it has, the first hour is so much more of, like, the, oh, hey, I'm Adam Sandler, but I'm being, like, awful and mean to so many people, but I'm also doing it in a PG context, and then it tacks on, like, the sentimental stuff about, like, oh, you weren't there for your family. I completely agree. I basically am a sexual predator with my wife. And now, oh my god, what did I do? Oh, it's so bad. It's Rockets dancing with bubbles. Oh so, man, like there you I know. So so I mean I, I know Click has defenders, but to me, Click is just straight up emotional manipulation top to bottom. Yeah, it's, it, it's almost like disgustingly so. And yep. it's it's one that really does not age well. Uh, a lot of people here said Chuck and Larry. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which is pretty terrible. It wants to be like very like friendly and kind of nice about the whole queer thing, but it's nothing but gay jokes and it's not funny. And Kevin James is terrible. Two movies I would say that are worse than Jack and Jill. I've said earlier that I think Grown Ups is an okay movie. Grown Ups 2 is probably the laziest movie Adam Sandler has ever done. That's probably the worst one. And that's just very nauseating and just in how lazy it is and all this conflict comes over enough. And it's like, God, y'all still act like you're teenagers. Jesus Christ. And then you get to That's My Boy, which is just repugnant. I would say it's just straight up. Uh, horribly repugnant and awful and mean-spirited in a way that's just like... it's such a bummer that, like, the Adam Sandler, Andy Samberg, like, father-son dynamic has so much potential, and they wasted it on that terrible fucking movie. Oh, I know. There are points where, like, they're together and just drinking or whatever together, like, during their bachelor party scene, where it's like, oh, I could almost see, like, a fun movie where these two play father and son, and that movie is just, like, the... Especially when it gets to, like, that weird fucking incest twist... 
That's just oh, like, God. what are we doing? What which is, is a, which is something Sandler loves to do. It has all of his weak points where it's like, well, I'm not so bad compared to these people. And it's it, it's it always all have that high ground where he's had his most annoying and frustrating. And it's like I, I get the character he's playing. He's kind of playing a riff off his buffoon character or the Uncle Donnie character from some of his albums. But it's just the worst weaponized in that everyone has to like him and then everyone has to hate Andy Samberg because he's just kind of generic. But it's just like this is so kind of like off balanced and fucked up and wrong in ways that I just kind of have, have contempt. I have total contempt for him with there. Uh, I guess I would also throw out there is that we said the cobbler, the cobbler is fascinating in how off it is. It was made by Thomas McCarthy, who would later go on to make Spotlight that same year and win, like, the screenwriting Oscar <laughs> that same fucking year he blew at the yep. fucking cobbler. Yeah, with with him and also rising star Dane Stevens. And has the one of the most what-the-fuck endings, but I was like, I am kind of into this. It's mostly kind of a boring, weird, like, fantasy, dramedy kind of thing that's going on. And then the last 15 minutes happen, and it's like, oh, wait, are we building a universe? What the fuck's happening with this movie? <laughs> it's so <Yeah>. weird. <laughs> uh, I would also say, we mentioned it earlier, but I think Men, Women, Children is fucking awful. I think it is, like, one of the most cynical, nihilistic perspectives on love and gender relationships, and it's just like, man, I would have been happier if people died in this movie. <laughs> it's that kind of fucking, like, drags you down, but Adam Sandler's good in it. I would say that's the worst of probably his dramas. Um, I do, and I did also see Rain Over Me, which I hadn't seen before, and Jonathan mentioned that. I do agree, that feels the most like it's a happy mass and designed Oscar bait movie. Yep. That's that's so, and like, the Don Cheadle character's so terrible, and all, like, the weird stuff where, like, he's getting a sexual harassment lawsuit that's, like, totally contrived and dumb. Um, and Sandler has to have, like, his big Oscar moment of just, like, oh, I didn't talk about my daughters, now I will, and oh, they died during 9-11! Like, it's, it, it feels very rote. There's elements of that movie that I do kind of enjoy. Like, I, I, like, when Adam Sandler is, like, despondent, I think his acting is pretty good. But when he goes kind of over the top, it's just like, okay, it's there. And then they have to have the terrible bit where they're actually playing the song Rain Over Me during a montage. I was like, oh yep. my god, that is... But he, that's, that's the thing, even in the worst of dramas, he's not bad in this series. Like, even the Spanglish, which I do not like whatsoever. He's really good in Spanglish. In fact, I really like the casting in that movie, but it's just not a very well-executed movie. Yeah. Uh, Sandler, if you think about it, Sandler is kind of like a piece of clay. He is as good as the person who is molding him and directing him and giving him something to do. Because people can clearly make gold out of him. But if not, you just get a big pile of doo-doo. Yes, indeed, a big pile of doo-doo. For sure. Do you have anything to add at all, Adam, to this rambling we've been doing? Oh, honestly, because I haven't watched a lot of his later movies. Like, I've never seen the the only Netflix one of his I've seen is The Ridiculous Six. I didn't see The Cobbler. I, I don't even know what Men, Women, and Children fucking is. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, I, I just, I sort of just jumped off the Sandler bandwagon, uh, apparently, into a river, because I've never heard of any of these. Well, no, more onto a raft, and me and Scott are in the river drowning. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> because I just, I don't, he just doesn't do it for me anymore. It's not that I, like I said, it's nothing against him personally. It's just, I, I'm tired of his fucking shtick. So yeah. I kind of, I kind of stopped. 
Well, but I think it's, it's like Scott kind of brought this up earlier. It feels like we have this sort of weird, at least, attachment to Sandler as sort of this figure where, especially like you see him in like talk shows and he has like a fond yeah. rapport with everybody. And then you see something like an Uncut Gems where you're just like, oh my fucking God, he can actually pull something like this out. And it's so phenomenal. Like, I, I can't emphasize enough that Uncut Gems is one of the weirdest theater experiences I ever had, where I was next to a dude who was narrating the entire movie. Um, there were these two teenagers smoking weed out of a vape on the left of me. And through the theater during quiet moments, I could hear Cat's fucking songs playing. <laughs> like, it was one of, like, these experiences where I should have, like, walked out of the theater. But the movie was that good that I was so invested the entire time and on the edge of my seat, despite all this bullshit going on around me. Because he's very funny throughout it, but there's so much tension about any time that he makes these stupid bets. They're just like, what the fuck are you doing? You could have gotten out of the situation. <laughs> Oh, man, uh, I, I had a connection to that movie, too, because I took my brother to see it, who doesn't really watch movies, and he's very, like, stoic and hard. 15 minutes into that movie, he's like, Adam Sandler's going to give me a heart attack, and I was like, good, because <laughs> that's what this should be, and it's so gr- it's so great. Then I see it, the, then later I talk to my mom about it, it's like, oh, yeah, Adam Sandler plays this gambling addict. Oh, so he's like my brother, and then he says, no, he's also in Hookers. Oh, he's definitely my brother. <laughs> it's based on a true story, yes. But we gotta move on here and get to the ending of our show, so we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for doing the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show as well. Uh, thanks to all our loyal patron supporters, who just for $1 a month, they get uh, some bonus content, get to vote on some polls. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate every single dollar that's contributed, including from our lovely guest here, Mr. Scott Johnson, who is a loyal patron subscriber. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, but Scott, do you have anything to promote while you're here on the internet? And uh, yes, I. Uh, yes, I indeedly do. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Scott PJ Thoughts. You can look at my opinions on uh, media and politics and all that other stuff. If you are a fan of drinking, which was necessary to get through some of these movies, uh, you can find me at PorchDrinking.com, where I've done articles on like, hey, what are the best beers to watch like say we're all feeling kind of cooped up and so what's some good comfort food movies and i have a really good list i was happy about and then there's some other stuff i've covered i was actually thinking about what beers to pair with these two movies uh one that came up immediately for punch drunk love was uh pudding goggles by by a brewery called forger brewing which has all this depth and layers and it's a very sweet pastry kind of stout but it has this complexity to it that just kind of draws you in and gets you very interested and then on the other side of the spectrum adam you might know this but for Jack and Jill, I picked Voodoo Donut Bacon Maple by Rogue, which is infamous for how terrible it is and as a dare beer that you shouldn't drink. And even you know how terrible it is. It's like, oh, my God, why I drink that? And that's how Jack yeah. and Jill is. Yeah, yeah. I would have picked for Jack and Jill a cup of uh, uh, wino piss. <laughs> Some piss from uh, Alan Covert, who plays a homeless man that they make fun of. Yeah. Yes. I'd have picked, yeah, his. Farms hobo he's been a hobo twice in Adam Sandler movies, at least. Well, I believe he's also reprising his role from Happy Gilmore, which also weird, weirdly happens. Like, these sub-roles get reprised in other movies. It's very odd. If that's true, that's fucked up, Adam Sandler. Why didn't you pay your caddy enough money? That's true. Yeah, you spent, like, what, 25 years? Well, so that, why would you not allude to that fact? They don't do anything with it. I don't know, there's also, yeah, like, in, all... what was in Blended, like, both Alexis Arquette from The Wedding Singer and Alan Covert as his character from Fifty First Dates show up. Just why? I don't know. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. No. Also, Blended, not that bad. I thought it was fun. 
I didn't think it was that terrible. If if you watch enough Adam Sandler movies, you'll go, oh, that character cameo is there. That character goes there. There's a huge pin-up string connection. There's a Happy Madiverse going on. With Happy Madison, obviously. <laughs> yes, of course. But um, if you also want to see some of my own musings, you can find me at Not the Who's Tommy on uh, Twitter and Instagram, where I post some stuff. And I also post stuff at MarianneThomas.wordpress.com for like reviews and episodes of the show and all sorts of lists and stuff. And also, you know, usually around this time, I would have gone to DragonCon. Um, but obviously the convention, given coronavirus stuff, did not happen physically this year, but it did happen virtually. And you can find me doing a virtual panel uh, over at the uh, DragonCon Horror Track Facebook page, where I talk about 21st century horror films with a great panel of guests. Yes, it was quite enlightening. Yes, yes, quite. And of course, you can also uh, find Adam picking up his sister from the airport at Dina, right? And you're going to spend all of Hanukkah with her. I'm leaving her ass there. <laughs> Dad, why did you leave me here? Why? Why did you leave me? Because I can't stand you being here! Uh, look forward to Adam and Adam Dina coming from Happy Madison Pictures <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> on your Netflix screen soon. You've been loyal to Adam Sandler, so he's going to give you a movie. You're like a Nick Swartzen. Oh, oh, oh that's cruel. Why'd you, why'd you call Adam that? Is Alan Covert grandma's boy at least somewhat better? <laughs> no. <laughs> well we'll move on anyway so if you want more of this great compliments that we give each other please subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher other podcasting platforms out there if you're listening on eso uh, you can take all sorts of great other shows and even dig into our archives on the Podbean original feed uh where we have like 60 something episodes that we've done before we even joined the network and if nothing else you can just rate review or just share the show around that helps us get a bit more visibility out there in the podcast diverse yeah, just do it for us. It's not that hard. It's super simple. It's a fucking butt. Yes, it's just a simple choice. Much like the choice that we have for the very end here, we're, we're picking at least one of our choices for uh, next week's episode, which we're uh, going back to a director's filmography. We're doing Peter Jackson, who's had a very interesting career, and I'll be very curious to talk about it here. We normally would do this where uh, Adam and I would each have uh, two films of different quality that we switch off on. Uh, where um, in this case Adam has two good picks, I have two bad picks, and usually we pick them between 1 and 10 for each of those choices, and the other person or a guest like Scott would end up picking uh, the good and bad feature based on saying a number between 1 and 10. But you all, who are patrons like Scott, got to vote for our bad pick for this particular episode, and uh, you all end up choosing between King Kong, his remake, and the winner, Lovely Bones, which will be our bad pick. For next week. Well, I could always use a nap. So. <laughs> as long as you're awake for the recording, that's fine. Well, well. A very sad nap. Yeah. <laughs> a sad, angry nap. Yes. Uh, but, Scott, you still get to go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10 for Adam's two good choices. So go ahead. Pick number between 1 and 10. Well, to quote from uh, the Almat himself, kids from 7 to 17, number 7. At number nine, I have Brain Dead or Dead Alive or I Kick Ass for the Lord. Uh, okay, right, but what was your other choice? The Frighteners, which is a classic. But I'm glad we got Brain Dead. Yes. Because well, it is a oft. Uh, you know, it's popular in the genre circles, but a lot of people haven't seen it. And it's uh, it's it's something. <laughs> It is definitely something, and we'll be talking all about that next time. But until then, uh, everybody, let's coast on our laurels and be in Adam Sandler movie so we can get like a bunch of money for just embarrassing ourselves. Come on, I'm just going to fart a lot.
This is the greatest seizure I've ever had. <laughs> Good night. Later. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.